Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. You know, in church world, we talk a lot these days about living the abundant life and what that looks like. But we don't, as often, talk about the next life, especially when it comes to hell. What does God's Word really say about hell, and is it even really a thing for us to talk about anymore? But I'm glad to see you guys here today. Thank you for being here. This is part four in our message series called Superstructure. And this series is just one of a series of series that we're doing all year long, talking about standing and building our house, talking about stopping going where the world is going and taking a stand and saying we will not fall to the cultural norms of this world. Instead, we are going to build our house the way Jesus told us to build. Somebody was asking me, why you keep talking? Why are you keeping on this? You know, why won't you just shut up about it, I guess, is what they're thinking. And uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, because my heart is so heavy. It's so burdened for you and for me. I'm so concerned and burdened about our culture and the way it's going and whether or not you are able to stand. I'll tell you why I continue to do this, because I don't know that we're ready for the flood that we're already neck deep in. I don't know that we're ready for the battle that we're already knee deep in. I don't know that we're ready for it, and I don't know that our infrastructure that we currently have can support us in this. Here's why I'm talking about this, because just this May, uh, there was a study that was released by the Cultural Resource Center at Arizona Christian Center. It's uh, Arizona Christian University. It's George Barna's Center of Study. George Barna is one of the most preeminent and trustworthy um, surveyors and information gatherers that we have. And they conducted a study of pastors in May. Uh, they released a study in May. Pastors, pastors, church leaders. And what they found is that as of this May, only 37% of pastors currently have and live in and preach from a biblical worldview. 37% of pastors have a biblical, that means 43% do not have a biblical worldview. This is what we've been talking about all year long leading up to this point. We spent about the first half of the year laying a foundation about who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is all about. And now we're kind of building our superstructure, building on top of that foundation to know what we believe and what the scripture truly says. Because 37% of pastors, only 37% understand a biblical, this ought to be shocking to us. How do we know they've, they've got such a poor worldview? Because they answered questions in the survey. So in this survey, pastors 
would answer questions and say things like, there is no moral absolute truth. Pastors saying there's no absolute truth. Pastors would say things like, salvation is not necessarily based on Christ's sacrifice and my repentance. Pastors are saying this. They're answering questions and saying that the Holy Spirit is, you know, just a symbol, not a person. We did a whole series on the Holy Spirit earlier this year. <laughs> and I don't know how a pastor can say that. Um, pastors will say things like unmarried sex is okay by God long as there's love. Pastors are saying that the Bible supports socialism over capitalism. Yeah, we'll be talking about that next month. And I'm just telling you, prepare to be deplatformed from social media. Uh, pastors will say that the Bible is ambiguous on abortion. We're going to be talking about that next month also. Prepare to be deplatformed. Pastors will say that reincarnation is a real possibility. I'm not even going to waste my time talking about that. This ought to make us really worried because if the leaders of our movement don't know what direction we're coming from or what direction we're heading in, things are getting crazy and everything is crumbling much more and much faster than we even thought. Am I right? If the leaders of this movement don't even know what direction we're coming from and what direction we're heading, what does that mean for our children and for our grandchildren? You know, what does it mean for Christopher Chadwick? What does it mean for Bo Newberry? What does it mean for Carter Lovell? What does it mean for our kids and our grandkids? And I'm telling you, this ought to make us want to buckle in and get our heads and our hearts in the right place. It, it ought to make us want to study to show ourselves approved because it's time for us to stop drifting down the drain with the culture and it's time for us to take a stand and to build our house. Am I right? It's time for us to build our house right so that we will not fall to the winds of the culture that are blowing, but instead we'll stand and we'll be the people that God's called us to be. And we will be able to see the next generation know God and walk with him. Don't you want that? That's why I'm still talking about it. That's why I'm still talking about it. So this series, just to bring you up to speed on this series, um, in week one, last month, uh, we started off talking about the big picture and why did God create the universe and everything in it. In week two, we, we talked about the word of God and what absolute truth really is. In week three, uh, we zoomed in on creation and we looked at what the answer really is there. It's not really about what, it's about who. And you can get all those messages for all of this entire year's worth of standing on our website. That's, we provide them all for you. They're on YouTube, they're on our website. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. We, you can subscribe to our podcast. We just want you to have the resources because I'm not kidding, prepare to get deplatformed. As we continue through this month and as we go into next month and we start talking about what all this means for what you believe about abortion, about capitalism versus socialism, 
about gender issues, about gay marriage. As we talk about that stuff in the coming weeks, I'm just telling you, prepare that we will get deplatformed. Prepare that we won't have those resources available for you anymore. I'm telling you, take advantage of them now because they may not be around six weeks from now when we conclude this series and we're done talking about all the stuff that we won't be allowed to talk about publicly anymore. So today, today, I want to answer this question in this uh, series, uh, is hell for real? Is hell for real? I'm doing this particular message today because a friend of mine sat with me and asked me this question point blank. He's like, so really, we, do we believe in a literal, you know, fiery place of punishment? Is hell a real thing? And I just want to be really clear about hell, and I want to make sure we understand what God says about hell. We see hell today everywhere, it seems like. It seems like we're talking about it everywhere. It's all over the place. I mean, how many of you guys remember the old video game, Doom? Did you play Doom, the video game? I did back in the day, back in the early 90s when it was DOS, MS-DOS, you loaded the disc on. Did you do that, Wes? You weren't even born then, you don't know. I would load the disc in and I'd call it up and I'd play and, and Doom is a game where you're a soldier and you're going through, I guess, I don't know, the, the, the different chambers of hell and you're killing all the demons, working your way up through the bosses to Satan himself. It was a, uh, it was a big, big, it was one of the early first person shooter games. But today, it's a little bit different. Now Disney has produced a new cartoon series for FX. It's airing nightly, I think, or weekly, I don't know, at 10 o'clock at night. But it's a cartoon called Little Demon. And it's a show about Satan and his illegitimate daughter, the Antichrist. And how they're trying to work their way through the world. I don't know. I haven't watched the cartoon. But it's a Disney cartoon on FX. I guess it's meant for your kids to watch. The voice of the lead character, the Antichrist daughter, is Aubrey Plaza. You may know her from Parks and Rec. And she's quoted as saying, I love that we're normalizing paganism. We see hell everywhere today. It's it's just kind of out there in the culture all the time. And we talk about it all the time, right? We say stuff like, you know, my boss is putting me through hell, right? Or this world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? I mean, we say it all the time. War is hell. And I think we can all agree that a loved one with advanced dementia is a living hell, right? It's horrible. So we talk about it all the time. We use the term an awful lot. We hear about it everywhere, but not in church. We don't talk about hell in church. For whatever reason, the church has decided that hell, you know, that's, that's just bad PR for God. And we need to kind of clean up his image for him a little bit. We need to kind of freshen him up and make him a little bit more, you know, happy and palatable to everybody. And so we in church don't talk about hell. In fact, most Christians have never heard a sermon about hell. So you could, should consider yourself one of the first, I guess. Um, it's not fashionable. It's not cool to talk about hell. It kind of kills your vibe, you know. 
There's a lot of pastors who would much rather give you a big old toothy grin and make you feel good about yourself, but not tell you the truth about hell. It's really crazy. In fact, first blank on your page, here's my question for you today. I hope you're taking notes. Here's my question. Is the church in denial about hell? Are we living in denial about this thing that God is very clear about in his word? Who are we to not talk about something that God talks about in his word? Who are we to say that this is inappropriate or not good or it might be scary or it might be bad? Who are we? We're finite, limited beings, am I right? We don't even know if it's going to rain this afternoon or not. We don't know what's going to happen in the next 30 seconds. Who are we to second guess the plans and the purposes of God? Who are we to not talk about things that seem to be important to God? I think, I think we've gotten our signals crossed in church, and I think that we want to save people from the idea of hell, and we've forgotten that our mission is to save people from actual hell itself. That's just my opinion. Deuteronomy 32, who are we to second guess? It says, he is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. The psalmist in Psalm 18 says, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. Who are we to second guess? God is the one that defines reality. So let's look at what his description of hell is really like. So we're going to look in the word today and here's what we're going to discover. Hell is one of those ideas in scripture where there is no one clear defining verse. There's not a passage, there's not a section, there's not a chapter, there's not a writing, there's not a teaching that says, okay, let me describe hell, here's how it's structured, here's where it's located, here's what it does, here's who is there, here's who isn't there, you know, it looks like this, smells like this, acts like this. There's not one clear definition, but yet this is one of those unfolding doctrines in Scripture. It kind of starts out small and obscure, and it develops as you read through so we have to get our good Hebrew mindset on and understand that that's the way they thought. That's the way the Jewish people thought in those days is that rather than defining something and drawing a box around it, they would describe it from this angle, from this angle, from that angle so that you can understand it from all different sides. Does that make sense? So let's start by looking in what most scholars believe is the oldest book in the Bible. Who knows what the, the oldest book is? Job. Wow. Very well, very well educated crowd. Good. Job is the oldest writing that we have in scripture. And he talks about this term Sheol. Sheol. And I want to give you several terms so that you can hopefully understand a little better. Sheol is the primary term in the Old Testament that is used for hell. The definition of Sheol is really just kind of the realm of the dead. It's the place of the dead. Okay, it's very nonspecific. It's just where the dead go. But it's described in Scripture starting in Job 
in this way. Job 10, Job has been listening to his buddies all tell him why the catastrophe has fallen in his life, and he's tired of listening to all their junk, and he's ready to die. He's just tired and fed up, and, and he's got nothing left in his life. And here's what he says to him in Job 10. He says, I have only a few days left, so leave me alone. Leave me alone that I may have a moment of comfort before I leave, never to return for the land of darkness and utter gloom. He goes on and he says, it's a land as dark as midnight, a land of gloom and confusion where even the light is dark as midnight. So Job is getting ready to move from this land to that other land. He's moving his existence from here to there in this gloomy, dark, confusing place. This is our earliest description of what Sheol might be like. Solomon comes along much later and he enlarges on this idea as he's Observing the apparent meaninglessness of life. In Ecclesiastes 9, he says this, there's hope only for the living. As they say, as they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Do you say that? Boy, the lights are going more and more crazy in here right now. Better to be a live dog than a dead lion. I don't even know what that means, but that's what they say. Uh, He goes on and he says, The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, all is long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So Sheol is a place of nothingness. It's a place where whatever you were, you aren't anymore. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10, a little bit later, he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is a hopeless place of little to no existence any longer. The psalmist speaks of the wealthy who trust in their riches and they don't trust in God. And here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 49. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So it's a restless, no place to dwell, consumed in your form. You won't have this corporeal being anymore. Um, It's probably very scary. You're being shepherded by death itself. Isaiah the prophet describes the proud who do not acknowledge God. And he says this, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. 
her revelers and he who exalts in her. So somehow it's in the depths, in the biblical mind of the Old Testament, it's in the depths of the earth underground, you go down to Sheol. So the idea of Sheol is this place where there is detachment from everything and confusion, fear, sorrow, despair. It's this place of nothingness. And I will say that there's another Old Testament contemporary word. It's a pagan word, and the word is Hades. Hades was a contemporary thing, and it also means the realm of the dead. And Sheol and Hades are basically equivalent. There's really the same idea between the two things. And the idea of Hades persists all the way into New Testament times. By the time you get to the New Testament, you don't really see the term Sheol. You don't see the term Sheol anymore. All the writers of the New Testament, when they're talking about hell, they use the term Hades. They're always using the term Hades when they're talking about hell. So it's the same kind of thing, except for one guy. There's one guy that uses a different word, and it's Jesus. When Jesus is talking about hell, occasionally he will use the term Hades, but more often he uses a different term. And it's not a word about an abstract place, maybe in the depths of the earth. Jesus actually uses a geographical name when he's talking about hell. So Jesus used the term Gehenna when he's talking about hell. Gehenna was a well-known place to everybody. Gehenna is the valley just south of Jerusalem. It's a place that everybody knew about, a place of sad, sad history. Gehenna was also known as the Valley of Hinnom. It's a terrible place where back in the Old Testament times, pagan kings would conduct human sacrifices to the Canaanite god Molech. They would burn people alive at altars set up to Molech in Gehenna. It was a terrible place. And sure enough, good kings like Josiah came along and they tore down those, Josiah tore down the altars. But by that time it had earned its reputation and they called it the place of slaughter. Nobody wanted to be there. Nobody wanted to go there. It was an awful, evil, hideous place. You wanted to stay away from it. So nobody, like, built their home in Gehenna. Nobody wanted to be there. So you know what it became? It became the trash dump of Jerusalem. And so all the trash would go there. All the human waste would go there. It became a place where they would throw the bodies of the homeless and the detached, and criminals. So it was a place of rotting flesh and a smell that would never go away. There was a fire always burning in Gehenna. There were always fires all around in the trash and refuse heap. It was a place of burning sewage, burning flesh, and garbage. 
Maggots and worms crawled all throughout the whole nasty waste thing, and the smoke stunk to high heaven and was literally sickening. The Bible itself says the smoke from Gehenna was sickening. It was a place that was utterly filthy and repulsive to every person. And this is the association that Jesus makes when he describes hell. When Jesus talks about hell, he talks about that valley full of never-ending fires, that lake of fire that was always going on just to the south of Jerusalem. So Jesus, in Matthew 13, uh, describes it. He says, that's the way it'll be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked people from the righteous, throwing the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, the king will turn to the goats, those on his left, separated from the sheep at judgment day. And he says, he will turn to those and he'll say, away from you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. Jesus uses the term when he's giving parables about hell and about how we live out our life on earth. He's telling the story about the uh, master that prepares the wedding feast and there's one unprepared servant that comes not ready and not dressed for the wedding and the master in Matthew 22 says, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talks about non-fruit bearing trees being cut down and thrown into the fire. He talks about putting your life in danger of hell fire. Jesus talked about Gehenna a lot, and there's only one other guy in all of the New Testament writings that uses the word Gehenna and only in one place. It's the brother of Jesus, James. And when he's talking about the tongue that is set on fire by hell and can set a whole forest on fire, he uses the term Gehenna. Gehenna is an awful, terrible, terrible place. And it's not only just an awful, terrible place, but there's another word that often accompanies Gehenna, and it's the word aeonios. And it's the Greek word that means eternal and timeless. So in Jesus's mind, the fire, the stinky, nasty, maggot, worm, flesh-burning, sewage-burning fire is forever. It goes on and on and on. In Revelation 20, we see that the devil is cast into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Five verses after this one, we're told that anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life is also cast into that lake a fire. In the parable of the talents, the faithless servant is thrown into the darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. So what we can see from all this, Old Testament and New Testament, put all this unfolding idea together and you'll see next blank on your page that hell is clearly a real permanent place of torment, punishment, and isolation. 
It's the worst. There is nothing worse than in hell. I had a friend in high school who told me that if he had to choose between heaven and hell, he'd choose hell any day because all of his buddies are going to be there and they're going to party forever in hell. But that's nothing, nothing like the biblical description of this place of isolated torment, punishment, confusion, and disaster that hell really is. It's awful. And you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, that's awful. No wonder we don't talk about this in church. It's terrible. I would say, yeah, that's the point. That's the whole point is hell is hell. It's the worst. Nothing can compare to how bad hell is. And let me tell you one thing that's scarier than hell. And that's the fact that hell is not reserved just for school shooters and terrorists and child molesters. When Jesus talks about hell, look at some of the things he says, Matthew 5, 22. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 5. He says, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the Gehenna fires of hell. See, there's a hell for the really, really bad people. You know, the ones that make the evil, awful headlines. I want to believe that there's a special place, you know, in hell for them. But Jesus here isn't talking about them. He's talking about me in the car on my work, on my way to work on a Tuesday. Right? Is he talking about you? Hell isn't reserved just for those evil, bad people. If you call someone an idiot, if you're even angry with someone, or if you curse someone, you and I are in danger. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about everybody. He's talking about us. Matthew 7, look at this one. Jesus says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Hey, is, does this fly right in the face and go contrary to judge not lest you be judged? No, I, I would encourage you to actually read that passage. When that verse comes just a few verses before this verse. Jesus isn't ever saying that you can't judge. He's saying you got to know how to judge. And he's really clear. The point that he makes, starting off with, don't judge lest you be judged, he winds it up here saying you can actually judge. And who should you judge? I think you should probably start with yourself. You can tell. You can tell. Even a child is known by his doings. Right? Isn't that what the Old Testament says? And so here's what he's saying. He says, a non-fruit producing tree is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Hey, good North Georgia people, what kind of fruit does an apple tree produce? What? Peaches. Peaches. <laughs> 
An apple tree produces what? Okay, Florida people. An orange tree produces what? Okay, good. So a Christian should produce... Christians. Yeah, we, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Yes, 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 we should bear that fruit. But I'm saying answer number one to that is a Christian should produce Christians. When was the last time you produced another Christian? When was the last time you won somebody to Christ? When was the last time you had fruit evident in your life? Because Jesus says a non-fruit producing tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. Who's he talking about here? Jesus himself is telling us this ought to terrify us. This ought to make us stop in our tracks and go, hold on, this is a big deal. I don't know why we don't talk about this all the time. Because Jesus himself wanted us to know that hell is a huge deal. Here's how huge of a deal he's saying it is. You know this passage. You're familiar with this. But what's he really talking about here? In Matthew 9, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to end up in Gehenna with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to end up in Gehenna with two feet. He goes on, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into Gehenna where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Jesus wants us to take this super, super, why don't we talk about this? Because Jesus is saying you are better off mutilating yourself than ending up in Gehenna. It's awful. It's worse. Why aren't you talking about this? Why aren't you desperate about this? Why aren't you begging your neighbors to not go to Gehenna? Why aren't you begging your family members not to go to Gehenna? If you really understood it the way Jesus understood it, you would be on your knees on your neighbor's front porch saying, please don't go there. But we think it's not fashionable. We think it's bad PR for God. Because, you know, frankly, none of this teaching sounds like the Jesus that we talk about in church today. We like to talk about the loving, grace-giving Jesus who's all about stroking your back and making you feel good about yourself. Right? You know, oh, Jesus is all love and grace and sweetness and butterflies and rainbows. I just want to say, yeah, yes, the overwhelming message of the New Testament is that there is grace for you in Christ. That is the message of the entire New Testament. But please remember that the New Testament is the back 
third of the Bible. And there's a whole other two thirds that come first. And the overwhelming message of the first two thirds, the Old Testament, is fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Am I right? Fear the Lord, fear the Lord. That's what the Bible is all about. That's why when, when, when Paul is writing his great treatise on grace and salvation, we call it Romans. It's all about grace. It's all about how you come into Christ. But Paul takes four entire chapters telling us the scary, scary bad news first before he ever, ever even gets to mention grace in chapter 5. Right? The way we say it here at the Orchard Church is this. We say that the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. And in church today, we whitewash the bad news. So the good news isn't really that big of a deal. And if you aren't caught in between this awful, terrible, Gehenna, hell, bad news, and the good news, grace of Christ, if you don't see yourself there, you just see a little bit of maybe kind of sort of bad here and a little bit of maybe kind of sort of bad, sort of good there, if that's all you can see, then really your religion's probably really just all about yourself because that's what you get your eyes focused on. But the reason we fear the Lord is because we want to turn our eyes to him. You say, well, I was always taught that fear the Lord meant reverence and respect. And I say that fear the Lord, we should fear the Lord in every sense of that word. Yes, we should revere and respect him, but we should also be in awe of him because he is terrible and wonderful. We ought to be trembling in fear before him and bowing to our knees, worshiping him in uh, grateful adoration. Am I right? Am I putting you to sleep? That sentiment of fearing the Lord is also clearly echoed in the New Testament as well. Right? Jesus himself in Matthew 10 says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We see this idea also in Luke. Luke, in Luke, it says this. It says, I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he is the one to fear. Yes, we should fear God. We should tremble before him because all of us are totally eligible for an eternity in Gehenna hell. Every single one of us has watched the news long enough to call some politician an idiot. Every single one of us has had a job long enough to call that boss or those employees an idiot. Every single one of us has been married long enough. Okay, I'm stopping right there. All of us are eligible for hell because we all fully qualify. You do you do, you all do, you do, you do, and I do. All of us fully qualify for hell because the wages of sin is death. All of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. My, everything I've earned in my life is hell. Gehenna, maggot-infested, smelly, stinky, nasty, isolating, tormenting hell. That's what I 
deserve because I've committed crimes against an eternal God. Some people are like, well, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. Okay, so you commit a small sin against an eternal God. How, how many Hail Marys does it take to earn your way back out? When have you prayed enough to overcome the sin that you've committed? You see, because you've committed it against an eternal God. So never, never, we can never earn our way back out again. There's no hope for any of us except for the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, say it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you loved us despite our sin. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son who came here and willingly took the blame for every single crime I had ever committed. Thank you, God, that for whatever reason you chose to exhaust all of your wrath against my sin onto Jesus himself. Thank you that you punished him in my place. Thank you that he died the wages of sin is death. He died for me on that cross. And he went to Sheol. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And today he lives with eternal life and he gives me eternal life as well. So that I don't just get out of hell and get to live with him in heaven forever. Hey, we'll be, we'll be talking about heaven next week. But I get to experience his life now. I get to walk in his presence and his power today. I get to speak bold truth and I get to bear fruit for him today. My life is different every single day now because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. Can I get an amen? Amen. So what I'm saying is, I'm saying that, next blank on your page, hell makes the cross lucid. Hell makes the cross lucid. The only reason the cross even makes any sense at all is because hell is a real place and it really truly exists, right? The good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. You try to explain it this way. So let's imagine, uh, Bruce, that you and I, hey, Bruce, Let's imagine that you and I are walking on Highway 515 together. Is that good? Highway 515, we're just walking along. And I look at you, Bruce, as we're walking, and I say, Bruce, I just want you to know how much you mean to me. So I'm going to show you. And I just jump out in the lane of traffic right in front of a semi doing 70 miles an hour. And now I'm a pancake on the road. Bruce, how would you respond to that? You'd you'd probably think that guy was a lot dumber than I thought he was, <laughs> right? What an idiot. He, he wants me to know how much I mean to him. Stupid. Maybe you should check my pockets for drug paraphernalia, right? That's just idiot talking. But imagine that scenario. You and I are on 515 walking down the road, and we see that same semi doing 70 miles an hour but careening out of control and it's heading for us. And like squirrels in the road, we freeze for one second, not really sure what to do. 
But then at the last second, Bruce, you dive over at me and shove me out of the way and you take the hit that I should have taken. Now that means something, doesn't it? And that's what this is all about, is that you and I have the careening wild wrath of God headed straight for us, but somebody shoved you out of the way and took it in your place. That's what the gospel is really all about. And without hell, we have a small, meaningless God and a small, meaningless gospel. Can I get an amen? So I know, I know in church, for whatever reason, we want to clean it up. We want to, we want to not talk about hell so much. We, we don't want you to really think about the bad news too much because we think it's somehow more, you know, loving and accepting for everybody. And I would say, sure, okay, no hell. No hell is great news for Adolf Hitler. No hell is great for Osama bin Laden, right? Or Ayman al-Zahrawi. You remember what happened 21 years ago today? No hell is great news for those people. No hell is great news for Salvador Ramos, right? He's the guy in Uvalde, Texas that shot his grandmother in the head and then went to Robb Elementary School and killed two educators and 19 innocent children, including these two, Eliana Garcia and Alexandria Rubio. He went and just mercilessly killed them for no apparent reason. No hell is great news for that guy. No hell is great news for Cleotha Henderson, who just a little over a week ago, ruthlessly and violently kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and murdered Eliza Fletcher, a Christian teacher, wife, and mom of two little boys in Memphis, Tennessee. No hell is great news for those people. But is that great news? Because there's something in us that demands justice, right? The blood of those innocent girls in that elementary school demands justice. Am I right? The blood of that Christian teacher mom in Memphis demands justice. There's something in us because God wired us that way. He made us like himself. He wants justice in this world. I see it in my own life. A couple of weeks ago, we had a um, super tailgate party right out here. Big party outside. It was a lot of fun. Were you there? Yeah, it was, a lot, it was hot. It was hot as crud, but it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I got to give a shout out to Larry Lynch because he noticed before the tailgate party, weeks and weeks and weeks before, he noticed that the parking lot was kind of a disaster. We have that gravel parking lot. And if you know anything about gravel parking lots, they suck. They don't last long. You put the gravel out there and before you know it, you got potholes and puddles everywhere. Gravel doesn't stay in place. It's just, it's kind of a disaster. And so it was a nasty, gross, awful thing. And Larry decided, well, we need to, we need to fix this thing up for the tailgate party so it'll be good. And sure enough, the week before the tailgate party, we spent thousands of dollars for people to deliver and spread gravel smoothly and evenly all throughout the parking lot. It cost a lot of money. Gravel used to be really expensive per load. Now it's double expensive per load. 
I'm not kidding. Spent thousands of dollars. And so we stood out there. I'm, I'm standing in that center island looking around at the beautiful, smooth, nice parking lot. I'm going, oh, Larry, good. Thank you, Larry. Oh, it's so good. Now, when we have our big party Sunday, everybody's going to be so happy out here. It's going to be so nice. It's going to represent God as best as we can. And it's not going to be a pothole, puddle, parking lot. Great. But then, just a few days later, I'm out there on that center island. I'm walking from here to the other building, and I can see where some lovely, wonderful, God-loving person has come into the parking lot, and they've done donuts all through the parking lot. Just totally tore it up, disrespected all the money we spent, disrespected me and you. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, okay, I know what we're going to do. We got cameras in this parking lot. Let's review the footage. Let's, let's get the tag number. Let's report them to the cops so that justice can be done. Don't you want that justice to be done? I do. Because that's how God wired us, to be like him. You see, here's the thing. Hell actually glorifies God. Because hell shows that God is not just an easygoing old grandfather who wants to stroke your back and hope that you're going to be okay, but that God is a holy, just God also. And that he will punish evil. And he will not let crimes stand. Right? Right? In Ezekiel 18, God himself says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, if righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? No, of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. God shows himself to be merciful, loving, and graceful, but also holy and just. Hell, last blank on your page, actually glorifies God. So we hate it and take great joy in the biblical, clear doctrine of hell and how God is glorified using it.